Deep pattern downfield, touchdown Miami. What a throw, Devontae Parker. Holy smokes, what a drive. What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we are doing part one of the Draft Preview Extravaganza. My very special guest on today's podcast, Kyle Krabs of USA Today, Dolphins Wire, the Draft Network, and the Locked On Dolphins Podcast. We're talking everything Dolphins draft and offseason to get you ready not just for Thursday night, but for Friday and Saturday as well. We're going to cover the entire offseason, examine the needs, examine free agency, and go round by round and pick some of our favorite players by position. A very lengthy, in-depth, two-part draft preview podcast here. Let's go ahead and jump right into this edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. Let's not waste any time. We have a lot to get to. Let's welcome in my guest, Kyle Krabs. And the crossover that many have asked for is finally here. The Draft Network Senior Analyst, Managing Editor of the Dolphins Wire on USA Today, the new and improved host of the Locked on Dolphins podcast, Kyle Krabs. Kyle, bangs, locked and loaded, maybe some coffee today, a shot of whiskey. You ready to do this, brother? How the hell are you doing, man? Listen, it's three o'clock. It's a little early for the whiskey. We've had a couple bang energy drinks already today because we're getting down to draft season and and we're a week out uh, as you and I sit down and have this conversation. So uh, things are great, man. It's, it's, it's nice to be right there on the doorstep. And last year's draft was kind of odd for everybody this year. You kind of get the feel that everybody's back in the rhythm a little bit. We had the 2020 season from the dolphins perspective. It was a successful campaign with an ending that, uh, that they probably aspired for something a bit more too. But other than that, I'm so excited to sit down and have this conversation. And like you talked about uh, the crossover that many have asked for, I've heard it on my end too. So I just <laughs> want to be transparent. I love seeing the reviews on drive time or locked on. It's like, Travis was great. I love Kyle too. Like it just, it's, it's been cool to watch you take over the reins of that podcast. That was my baby. And I told you when we first talked about, you know, I tried, I tried my best to immediately hand it off to you. Cause I thought to myself, no one's going to be able to take over this job and do it the way that I did it, like Kyle Krabs. And so I'm so glad that you took it and, and you're flourishing and people love the podcast, man. It's really cool to see. And now six months ago, you and I sat right over there on my couch. I'm in my apartment and watched a full slate of Saturday action leading up to the first start in the career of Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Then we're texting like little schoolgirls on Sundays. The Dolphins open up that 28-7 lead at Hard Rock Stadium. I still remember the text. Are you having as much fun as I am right now? And now here we are ready to do this crossover the fans have long called for. But I think we start here. And briefly, you touched on this in your opening, uh, not monologue, whatever, your opening response to me. Your thoughts on the 2020 team. How do they perform against your expectations? And what was your overall takeaway on year number two under Coach Brian Flores? Well, I'll give the Dolphins credit. This is the second consecutive year, year two of the the Chris Greer, Brian Flores tenure, that they outperformed expectations. Uh, for me, one of the things that I do over at Dolphins Wire right there on the eve of the season, like so many people, is you do the schedule prediction. You go through and pick wins and losses. And uh, year one, I picked them four and 12. They won five games. Year two, I picked them nine and seven. They won 10 games. So, uh, so you'll hear a lot of they're ahead of schedule. 
Uh, but I think when you understand what the Dolphins have in place, that's so different from what their past regimes have had with the quality of the coaching and the messaging that Brian Flores gets to his players and the concentrated effort to not just turn the roster over and embrace that rebuild, but bring players in who are going to respond to your coaching and actually have confidence that you have the long-term stability to create player development. I wasn't overly surprised that this team did go out and have the success that they did and, and you know, play disciplined football, won with all three phases, all the things that Brian Flores, everybody kind of chuckles, oh, yeah, it's a coaching cliche. No, like that, that's the mantra. And for a lot of teams, it doesn't work that way. So for to see that applied in real time was the most satisfying thing for me in the 2020 season. We, we had Coach Flores in the podcast. You're following Coach. I hope you know that here on the podcast. So, you know, no big deal. No no big shoes to fill here, Kyle. But we had him on the podcast, and he talked about his career in development, beginning in New England as a, a guy that worked – or not development, but, you know, the scouting side, the personnel side, and how important development has been. And you take a look at the jump some of these players take. You know, Andrew Van Ginkle in year number two, or, or Mike Gasicki in year number one under Flores and his staff, year number two as a pro. And that's that's how you wind up exceeding expectations is you have this national perspective that players are what they are, I suppose, in their minds, but they outperform those expectations because coaching is able to get the most out of those guys. Those guys buy into the program. Their character fits in with the culture, and that just creates a winning environment. It creates a competitive environment that has guys pushing each other on the roster. And Kyle, we saw that from the opening day of training camp all the way through to the Buffalo game last year, even though that didn't go the way we wanted it to, still this team competed its ass off all year long. But that was last year. This is this year. Coach would kill us for talking about last year on the podcast. But let's again briefly cover the offseason to this point. Will Fuller, Adam Butler, Matt Skura, Benardrick McKinney, Justin Coleman, among others. How do you feel this team addressed their pre-free agency needs in that March slash early April run-up? Yeah, I'm a big fan of what Miami did to not feel as though they're necessarily pigeonholed to have to do anything with their early picks in the draft. And then that focus can now be, okay, let's just pick good players and let the rest of the chips fall where they may. Uh, We felt, or many felt that they needed to go out and get a primetime pass catcher or somebody who would bring a different dynamic to the skill group. And Will Fuller and the speed that he brings is, Certainly a different dynamic. I know Jakeem Grant took a lot of those reps last year. Will Fuller's had the ability to play in more of a featured role and uh, have success playing uh, as a volume receiver, which is the difference between him and and some of the speed dynamics that Jakeem Grant brings. So I think that alleviates a lot of the pressure to try and force something. Uh, I like the signings of DJ Fluker and Matt Skur along the offensive line. Look, if you're going to create a pipeline from another NFL franchise, The Baltimore Ravens are a great place to look for physical offensive (laughs) linemen. They're going to reset the line of scrimmage that like, that's what they're, they do. That's their MO. And as we see Chris Greer and Brian Flores continue to put their fingerprints on this team, I think you're going to continue to see more of their own identity for what this team is. And for so long for Miami, it was, you almost got the impression that we're a couple players away. We feel like we're close. So let's just go get players that check those boxes regardless of what, whether it's financial implications or age and durability questions. And now it's like, okay, well, you've got two guys on the roster that are 30 years older or older now. So you don't have that opera or that roadblock. You understand this is a young team. They're going to grow together, like you said. And as long as everybody is, uh, I believe, uh, former Dolphins quarterback Josh Rosen used the phrase last year, a rising ties raids all ships. 
So that competitive nature in this locker room uh, with the free agent additions, uh, I like Justin Coleman to compete in the nickel against Nick Needham, who has been uh, a really nice surprise for Miami as a UDFA, 60% of the snaps each of the last two years for the Dolphins. Uh, Bernardrick McKinney in the middle. Uh, obviously, they, they made the effort to also bring back Elandon Roberts. Hopefully, we see him uh, in 2020, and he's back to the explosive hitter in between the tackles that he was in, in, or in 2020. Uh, Duke Riley, I think they got a lot of really good role players so they don't feel as though, man, we've got a gaping hole here that we're going to have to address. Yeah, you feel like, at least for me, the first time in a long time that I feel like Miami, before the draft, could line up and play a game tomorrow and, and have not really that many spots of concern that you would look at and say, oh boy, they got to address that right away. And that's part of the flexibility you mentioned with the free agent signings last week during the Fluker or after the Fluker signing. I covered this in the podcast and said, now I feel like you can take an offensive lineman, but you don't have to. And that's been an area that a lot of folks are pointing towards maybe with the sixth pick, maybe the 18th pick, maybe the 36th pick. But now again, it just opens up every avenue. So plenty of boxes checked. I love that you mentioned uh, the, the slot position with Nick Needham, but we're not going to be satisfied there. We're going to go out and we're going to sign a Justin Coleman, who has been one of the better slot cornerbacks in his history in the NFL or the last couple of years, or, you know, possibly Noah Iguanagani kicks inside. Brandon Jones can play some slot. They've got so many options to come down and fill those roles. I just love seeing the depth continue to accumulate, and I can't imagine that changes anytime soon. But now we've got nine draft picks scheduled for later this week, Four of those in really premium positions. So you can add to that within the top 50. What are your biggest needs on this Dolphins roster as we head into this draft here in just a couple of days? I'd still like to see more competition. And it's going to be the root of everything is competition, right? I'd like to see more competition in the pass catcher room, whether that comes depending on who's available there at number six. Uh, if you want to make that the top priority, any one of those top four pass catchers has redeeming qualities for Miami that I think makes a really compelling argument uh, for them to be the choice. Uh, I do think some added pass rush. I think one thing with Miami is uh, you're looking up at the Buffalo Bills in the division standings right now. And, and you have to, when you play against those upper echelon quarterbacks, have to be able to force them into mistakes and playing against Josh Allen has been problematic for the Dolphins since effectively the second game they played against him where he's had a ton of success. And you think about some of the games that the Dolphins did lose last year, that uh, Seattle game at the beginning of the season, the both of the Buffalo games, uh, those high-level quarterbacks, the, the Kansas City, Patrick Mahomes, those games against those high-level quarterbacks, Miami had to bring some pressure. But uh, I think behind that in coverage, uh, you lose some options if you have to bring extra bodies to create heat, and then the ball just gets out fast. So – you know, more athletes on the second level uh, from a coverage perspective, more guys who can win some one-on-ones naturally uh, in the pass rush department. Those would be the big areas for me. And then more competition up front. There's no such thing as too many good corners and offensive linemen. Uh, so from an offensive lineman perspective, uh, I would definitely like to see more added competition in that group as well. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, the need for winning more, I guess, natural one-on-one -on -one pass rushes because this defense, if they can find a way to, you know, kind of alter the plan to get more pressure from that front four and not have to commit so many blitzers, man, this defense could really cook. But I do want to touch on a topic that I cover on the podcast all the time, Kyle, and I, I sometimes maybe have a hard time communicating or articulating it, and, and I'll leave it to you because I just, I, I really like your work and believe you have a good grip on this type of stuff. You know, we hear all the time, like, 
Dolphins don't have that truly elite edge pass rusher. They have to go find that that guy on the market, whether it's big time money in the in the free agent market or the high draft pick. But this team has shown you that they can be top ten in sacks and top ten in quarterback hurries and pressures and disruption that leads to turnovers. Number one takeaway defense. Number one third down defense in the National Football League. And you look at the history of this defensive scheme and back in New England, obviously, that was able to say goodbye to Chandler Jones, Richard Seymour, Willie McGinnis. I mean, Trey Flowers, they've just not prioritized that position with big money or big draft resources. So in your best words, how do you articulate the way this scheme dictates the lack? No, I don't want, that's, a, that's kind of disingenuous, but the fact that there isn't that big money, marquee, highlight real pass rusher, like how would you tell a fan, explain that to a fan? Yeah, I think one of the big debates right now in football is coverage versus pass rush and, and where the value is and, and just look at where the Dolphins spend their money. And I think it, it gives you a little bit of an indication on, on where they would choose to prioritize those premium assets. And it's in the secondary with Byron Jones and Xavier Howard as two of the top paid corners in the NFL and uh, a couple of uh, safeties with corner experience and that versatility has is, is led to them being well compensated for, for their uh, services. Uh, but as far as the pass rush goes, I, I think you bring up a great point when you look at Brian Flores's lineage as a coach. And of course he has his own style and, and, and eye for it that he puts on top of that. But uh, you're looking for guys who can reduce angles and win with power. And that's one of the big things with a lot of the top pass rushers is they went off the edge, they force a guy to miss and they bend and they play at high angles to turn tight corners and, and win with speed but this system, because it is, you know, there's a lot of gap control. There's a lot of controlling the line of scrimmage. Uh, pass rushers who have heavy hands that can reduce angles is where you see so much uh, of the impact made in the rush department. Because instead of trying to play at steep angles and work around guys and having lighter guys that, you know, can do that, that subsequently get pushed around in the run game, you got guys that are capable of controlling the line of scrimmage, dictating play up front. And when you have to go get the quarterback, you play and displace the offensive lineman to make those angles less steep for you to get there. And then you pair in what this defensive system does as far as playing games up front and they get in double mug and they are in these amoeba defensive packages where they got everybody lined up and you don't have to send like six guys or seven guys. It's you're creating overloads where you're manipulating what the offensive line calls as far as identifying protections and whether we're going to go half slide or full slide and, and if you understand what the opposing team's tendencies are, and this defensive coaching staff is very good at that, then you can manipulate and understand what their counter is going to be to your pre-snap alignment and then start to play the ghost pressures, simulated pressures, and get that plus one on the backside of the rush. And uh, you saw that in that Rams game that we talked about at the very top here where you know they, just under, they got a really good grasp on what Jared Goff in Sean McDay's offense was going to do to try and get the ball out of his hands quick when he knew he was minus one in protection and they jumped all over it. So uh, systemically, I think the coaching staff and the style of play can help manufacture a lot of pressure, but against those top tier quarterbacks, that's where it really shows up where you have to be able to say, okay, we're going to drop eight in coverage. We're going to flood the intermediate areas of the field where those crossers are killing us and then go get your three best pass rushers to try and make something happen with just three. Back-to-back games, the defensive touchdown was the difference in the Cardinal game. Helped a lot in that Rams game, set the tone early in that contest for big wins over NFC West competition. And like the old adage says, you know, we talk about this on the podcast all the time, the worst place to be on the football field from a defensive perspective 
is behind the quarterback, and that's just not what this defense is going to do. So with all that out of the way, let's get into it, the draft. We're going to go pick by pick and kind of flesh out some of the options, some of our favorite options and players, debate it, and let the fans form their opinions on these discussions. That sound good, my man? Sounds great. Let's go ahead and start there with the sixth sixth pick in the draft. We started at three, go back to 12, back up to six. And Kyle, I asked Daniel Jeremiah last week, humble brag, about the move back from six. And he said, it, or from three up to three to 12 to six, easy for me to say. And he said it has to be for one of those premier playmakers this class has to offer. You know, DJ has Pitts, Chase, Waddle, and Smith, and all in his top six prospects. Just insanity as far as Dolphins needs and what matches up at the top of this draft. So some scouts say, and this is you know courtesy of Peter King's article a week or two back, that all three of these wideouts are better than the big three from last year, one by one, each better than the next. So with that in mind, are those options on the board for you, Pitts, Chase, Waddle, and Smith at number six? So my, my personal preferred order for the Dolphins would be Pitts at the top, I think he's the the player who brings you the most dynamics for what you can do from a personnel perspective and changing uh, the conflict that you can put opposing teams into with him as a mismatch weapon. Uh, Jalen Waddell is actually my personal top-rated wide receiver in the class, not just from a Dolphin scope, but also from an overall NFL draft scope. But you think about him and, and his speed and where he wins and what he could do when paired with Will Fuller. You want to talk about taking the top off a of defense. Those two guys on the field at the same time, uh, big time change in dynamics. Jamar Chase would be my third. And then Devontae Smith uh, is your quote unquote worst case scenario, which is a pretty darn good place to be. <laughs> and that's that's why I think that we look at the position Miami are in to get back into the spot at number six. It, it, like you said, it guaranteed one of those players, if not an opportunity to maybe move back again and still select one of them. We'll see what happens come draft night. But I do want to dive into that Waddle versus Smith debate with you because we've been texting all, for a year now about, you know, the Dolphins and, and last year's draft class and now this year's draft class. And again, going back to when we hung out and watched those games together back in November, or October, whatever it was, you were on the Jalen Waddle bandwagon big time, and you were telling me how great this guy was. And we sat here and watched him kill it against whoever they were playing that Saturday. So my question for you, Kyle, and this is, I guess, just trying to get you to open up the kimono here, so to speak, and tell us more about Jalen Waddle. You know, I was looking at um, Matt Harmon's reception perception data, which is just phenomenal a phenomenal resource for pass catching, both in the NFL and the draft. And he charts all these routes, all these plays, and, and against press, against off coverage, against man, against zone. And Devontae Smith was in the 98th percentile with his success against press coverage, something like 80%, maybe even better than 80%, whereas Jalen Waddle's success rate was in the 33rd percentile. And to me, that, you know, just on the surface says that maybe Waddle doesn't play as much outside. Maybe he gives you only a couple hundred snaps a year outside. So the debate that I want to ask you about it and kind of put your feet to the fire here is convince me why you don't take Devontae Smith or Jamar Chase, who can move about the formation, beat press coverage, handle the physical nature of the game, and not have to be used on jet sweeps and motion and return motion, all that fun stuff. Like, why is Jalen Waddle a player that can not just play in the slot, but do multiple things and be the guy you should take at that spot? Yeah, so I, I definitely think Jalen Waddle took more of his snaps in the slot throughout the course of his career at Alabama. So I, I think there is some potential to flesh that out. And that was why I, I was, you, know, you were heartbroken that he got injured in the first place, but this was going to be the year yeah. for him to 
be in a featured role and not be the fourth option, which is a crazy testament to the skill group that was there at the University of Alabama. <laughs> but, you know, he was the 1A or 1B, depending on your perspective, throughout that first month of the season, uh, the Georgia game, the Missouri game. And, and Missouri game specifically was a fun game because the, the Missouri coaching staff talked about how their entire focus was to take away Jalen Waddle. And he still hit him for eight for one thirty-five and right. two touchdowns in that game. So you can shield so much when you have elite speed and Jalen Waddle has that. And I think about what the dolphins did and them trying to maintain some stability with the offensive coaching staff and having the co-offensive coordinators who were on staff last year. So there's going to be a lot of correlation between what the terminology is, what the style of play is and what Miami did from an RPO perspective Jalen Waddle is that guy who's going to run that now screen where, you know, you turn it into punt return right or punt return left and just pull out if you got the box count number that, that dictates that you're throwing the ball or if it's two over two and one guy's playing super soft and you put him in that stack position. There's plenty of ways to work around press coverage, you know, instead of just a guy that, okay, we're just going to strictly play him on the outside. We're going to ask him, that well, is he on the line? Is he off the line? If he's off the line, you buy him an extra yard and a half to work with a little bit. You can use them in motion. You can use bunches. And the Dolphins did a lot of that where they had guys stacked and bunched and uh, tight bunched. And a lot of times it was Mike Gusecki on the backside who was the guy who was on the line of scrimmage uh, on the weak side of an offensive set. So I think Jalen Waddle, with the speed that he brings, obviously the explosive playability, his average touchdown reception, and throughout the course of his career, 17 of them was 45 yards. Average score, distance, 45 yards. So <laughs> – uh, I, I was listening to a really great coaches clinic from Steve Sarkeesian, who of course was the offensive play caller at Alabama. And he talked about, you know, explosive plays is the name of the game. And you as an offense, it's really hard to string together 10 or 11 perfect plays consecutively to go down the field and score points. And you think about where the Dolphins struggled at times. It was they had to string together long drives and overcome mental mistakes along the way to score points and get into the end zone and score touchdowns and not settle for field goals and stretches. So Jalen Waddle, that explosive dynamic, I think is the biggest thing, but it's not just what he brings himself, that vertical component, especially with Will Fuller, yeah. it makes everybody else better because now they're going to lift the roof off everybody else. If you, you can't play single high, if they're on opposite side of the field and they're both going to press vertically down the field, you cannot cover it. They're too fast. So it's going to prompt more of the two high safety looks. And by lifting that extra safety out of the box, now all of a sudden you have the advantageous box count to run the football and you're not outgapped. You're not going to have that extra defender stepping down and making sure that you're getting free hits on the running back in the run game within three yards of the line of scrimmage. And it's more room underneath for guys like Devontae Parker and Mike Gusecki to, if they can make somebody miss, they're not going to have a crowd to deal with anymore and they can generate some more yards after catch. So I think it's, his impact, Jalen Waddle's impact for me with the elite speed extends beyond just, okay, this is where he wins his routes. This is stylistically where you're going to get the most out of him specifically, but it's the overall impact for everybody on the offense that makes the moves the needle for me the most. Not to mention, you want to bracket Will Fuller, fine. We'll just do what Buffalo did to Miami last year and run those over routes and those drag routes and stretch you both vertically and horizontally with Jalen Waddle with Will Fuller taking the top off the defense. So it just, to me, it's like, you know, you talk about that matchup and 
or that possible, you know, inclusion into the offense, like that's a phenomenal option. But so too is the idea of Kyle Pitts. Like you mentioned, your top player Mm -hmm. at this position. And first I want to ask you, does he get by Atlanta number four? Because that seems to be the the consensus growing around the league right now, as far as national media is concerned. Everyone thinks he's going to go there because the Matt Ryan situation where they are pretty much tied into him for a couple of years, their cap situation, you know, requires that they, they can't really move on from certain guys and they just kind of have to take their medicine. Does he go off the board at number four? And then, you know, if he does come to Miami, talk about that offensive impact because I've been, you know, blue in the face talking about adding gaps in the running game. The fact that he played more in line, Gasicki played more slot. The fact that you could basically operate out of 12 personnel exclusively in, in a similar fashion to the 2010 Patriots who played that package and teams had no answer for it. So is that component more attractive than what you just talked about with Jalen Waddle? I think it is, and it, it, it's because of the conflict that it introduces, not from a, okay, what defense are we calling? It's who do you put on the field? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's even before you get to, okay, what coverage are we calling to account for these two guys with speed? It's, okay, they're in 12, but they can come out and they can legit play empty. Mm-hmm. Or they could go ace formation. You know, like, like there's so much you can do with two tight ends on the field and Kyle Pitts has shown the ability bumping and locking horns with JC horns of the world and the Patrick Sertains of the world that, you know, he can go win one-on-one and, and he can be press coverage and win with size. And uh, he can win with releases. And he, he's got this nice little hezzy Euro uh, move over the middle of the field when he gets draws linebackers and how he attacks coverages and, and understands different ways to win against different types of coverages. Yeah. That's the mismatch component, but it's, you look at what the Dolphins' efficiencies were from an offense last year. They were more their passing game was more efficient when they had two tight ends on the field. Period. Didn't matter if it was Ryan Fitzpatrick or Tua Tagovailoa. Both of them. They were better when there were two tight ends on the field. And that twelve personnel. When you have athletes, it becomes the ultimate conflict of this is traditionally a base defense look. Do we run base defense out there? Do we play nickel? Okay, if we play nickel and they're in the wrong formation. How are we going to account for it? If we go base and they go empty, you're going to have a Sam linebacker walked out in the slot against Kyle Pitts or Mike. Like, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so that that part of it to me is the most attracting part to Kyle Pitts is he's more rare for his position and he makes more conflicts for what he brings to the offense on top of what the Dolphins already have. So that's the big sell uh, for Kyle Pitts. And so we stay on that sixth pick to kind of round out, I suppose, the dark horse category, because I talked about Jeremiah says, of course, they're coming up for the skill player. You and I just fleshed out the multiple options these different guys can give from an offensive standpoint. But how about the potential of a non-pass catcher coming in at that spot? And I think you look at Panay Sewell, Rashawn Slater as possible offensive tackle options, and you could obviously always add offensive linemen like you had mentioned. Maybe it's the first defender off the board and the surprise of the century with Micah Parsons or Zayvon Collins. I don't know who that might be. Who do you think has the best chance of those dark horses? And just kind of talk through that group a little bit. I think the best stylistic fit of the non-pass catchers is probably Penny Sewell. Uh, I think he meets a lot of what the Dolphins, based on their additions to the offensive line, what it appears as though they like to have up front and guys who are physical, who, who have size, who are dense, uh, but they're also explosive as far as their lower body power and their ability to, to kind of move you off your spot. I think Penny Sewell has that. And my working comp for him is Laramie Tunsil in that really unique athlete with prototypical size 
but technically speaking is a little green and might need a little bit of time once he gets into the NFL to settle into that spot. Uh, I guess my big conflict for the Dolphins in drafting an offensive lineman at six, I, I definitely want more competition in that room. And I think there's a discussion to potentially be had about whether somebody's there at 18 that makes sense for them or in the early second round. But at six, you had three rookie starters on the offensive line last year. And you know, do you really want to invest and forsake some of your other areas of need where you have comparable talents and values available to bring another guy into your offensive line without getting some more finality on what you actually have. So just continuing to dump premium assets into the offensive line, you could do worse things. I wouldn't be upset, but there's would always be that part of me that says, yeah, but what if Austin Jackson and Robert Hunt develop the way you want them to now you, now you've missed an opportunity to potentially add a really rare player uh, to your pass catching group. That That's where my, my biggest, you know, pushback comes is that believe in the development of this coaching staff because they've proven that they can do it and they've earned that trust from the fan base and from folks otherwise so that's that's kind of where I come in at it I also wonder if maybe the better value is on the offensive line at 18 or 36 because of the depth at those spots and you might say the same thing for the receiver slash pass catcher group but to me the top of those those three pass catchers and put Kyle Pitts in there as well. So four of them, to me, that gap between them and tier two is more significant, I think, than the tackle drop off to the next tier. And that's kind of where we pick this back up at pick number 18. And we'll go ahead and close up part one of this podcast with the 18th pick and come back tomorrow and talk to you guys about the rest of the draft, perfect prototypes for this Dolphins team and much more on a two-part special episode here with Kyle Krabs, the host of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. Pick 18. I put down a few positions here, Kyle. Running back, possibly receiver, offensive line, defensive line, linebacker, and DB. So basically the whole damn cart, all a cart. But <laughs> I just figured you can't put anything past this franchise because we, they showed you last year, even after signing Byron Jones, they're going to go out and draft Noah Igbenogany and draft Brandon Jones and have them six six defensive backs with Nick Needham in the fold as well. So seven defensive backs who really can come on the field and give you valuable reps. So that's why I don't disclude or exclude any of these possible options. So what's your, what's your feeling? You're lean here at 18. You know, I guess we start with the running back position because folks are really into the idea of Najee Harris. I've been pounding the mm-hmm. Javante Williams train. I know you have as well, that he could be an option at that spot as well. But there's also the idea of possibly maybe the edge position dries up after the spot. Maybe that top level, the top tier talent at the edge position is available here and not at pick 36. Is that too high of a spot for a running back? Are Najee and Javante worth that spot? Is it worth possibly passing up on one of the pass rushers that falls? Where do you come down on the 18th pick and using it on a running back? Yeah, I think that if you do make that decision, if you're Miami, it's more so dictated on you don't trust they're going to be there for you at 36 when it comes back around. And there's a lot of smoke right now around Najee and the Pittsburgh Steelers and how taken they are with him. Uh, And then you got teams like the Jets and potentially the Jaguars and potentially the Buffalo Bills. But I think what's most interesting about that dynamic of it, because from a value perspective, Miles Gaskin had like 98 yards from scrimmage per game that he played last year as a seventh round pick the previous year prior. So you want to point to the quote unquote running back positional value and finding better values that can provide similar production later in the draft. Yeah, Miami needs to get a little bit more effective in the short yardage runs. And, you know, you listen to the press conferences throughout the season, they, they'd be the first to tell you that is converting those third and two runs with consistency and extending drives is going to be part of the next level of this offense. And having a guy like Javante or Najee 
who's 220 plus versus Miles, who's somewhere around 200 pounds, uh, is a natural boost to that dynamic of the game. And if you can find a guy who can provide all of the same traits Miles did, which is him becoming the de facto feature back because he can give you third down. He can give you pass catching. He can give you pass protection. He knows how to make his reads in the backfield when they're running inside zone. So like the full menu was there for, for him versus some of the other players that were brought in this past off season. Uh, I think Najee's probably a better fit from keeping the full menu out there. He's more accomplished as a pass catcher. Uh, he's been really good at that over the past two seasons. Uh, but if you want just a guy who is going to give you an absolute hammer in between the tackles and, and is going to run somebody over Javante Williams is that guy in this year's class. So for Miami, it becomes that question of, okay, do we want a guy who's going to take the early down reps and then will he seed snaps to miles Gaskin in passing situations? And if you want to do that, Javante Williams might be a better option for you just from purely what he brings as a power runner but if he's only going to, if he's not going to take all three downs, then you get back into the conflict of, do you take him at 18? So it, it's kind of a darned, if you do darned, if you don't conflict. Um, but Miami would also have the luxury of reading the board if they choose to go a different direction. And the jets are another team that they pick again in the early second round, the Jacksonville Jaguars, they pick again at 33. So those teams might not necessarily be super compelled to start a run on running backs in the twenties because they come around again at the very beginning of the, the second round. Now that, that's my, that was going to be my first rebuttal back to you is that it seems like that 25 to 40, maybe 50 range is always a run on running backs because teams for whatever reason, you know, don't want to put the value in the first round and they come back in the second round and things change. And we kind of saw that run last year after Clyde mm-hmm. Edwards, he goes off the board 32 to the chiefs. And then it kind of picks up with Deandre Swift and guys start flying off the board. So, you know, this Najee and Javante argument or debate is, is so fascinating to me because on one hand you have, the most accomplished running back the last few years in college football with Najee Harris as far as statistics and production go. But Javante Williams, I mean, 6.3 yards per carry in his career. He set PFF records left and right. He had the highest elusive rating they ever charted, the most yards after contact per average. He averaged over four and a half yards after contact per carry. That's so stupid. That's like a good average without just getting tackled. Four yards per carry. Good. After contact, he had that. He was a high school valedictorian. He was a former linebacker. Damn it, he plays in pass pro like he was a linebacker. So I just look at him, and I think there's so much upside with that guy, but Najee's more you know, more polished, more proven, 23 versus 20 years old. I think Javante turns 21 this week sometime. A great debate to have there. Let's move on from the running back spot, though, and finish up with pick 18. I put you know possibly Waddle and Devontae. I think you have to probably go up from 18 if you want to get one of those guys. I put Rashad Bateman there. Is there any other receiver you might consider at pick 18? Probably not at 18. And I do think that Rashad Bateman is a really attractive option for Miami when you consider the fact that he ran so many of his routes breaking into the middle of the field at Minnesota. They RPO teams to death there at Minnesota with Tanner Morgan at quarterback. And Bateman was fearless over the middle. And I was really impressed with his catch radius and ability to not break stride coming into the middle of the field, knowing that there's extra bodies and traffic in there and then converting that into yards after catch. So that's the big thing for, I think, whoever Miami brings in is a little bit more emphasis on guys who can create with the ball in their hands at the catch point and get some chunk yardage. Again, going back to what we we had touched about with Steve Sarkeesian and creating explosive plays. Uh, Bateman did that at one of the top levels of any of the eligible receivers back in 2019. 
uh, when he had his big breakout season. So Bateman, I would not sleep on as a sec- quote-unquote second-tier uh, option in the pass catcher room. And I think because he was so well-versed in breaking routes and RPO concepts and wrapping around that hook curl defender and finding that second throwing window, there's enough parallels there versus what we saw the Dolphins look to do with Tua Tagovailoa that I feel good about that potential fit. And how about up front on the offensive line as we kind of break this class down after the Panay Sewell, Rashawn Slater tier? Do any of these other guys jump into that first tier for you? I mean, I, I love Tevin Jenkins, Kyle. I think his tape is like coffee in the morning. It's like a shot of espresso, right, when you wake mm-hmm. up getting out of bed. He's so much fun to watch. And it's it's rare that offensive linemen get me up and fist pumping. And he does that on his tape. Elijah Vera Tucker, you know, one of the top offensive linemen in this class. I think Christian Derrissaw is a damn good player as well. How does that tier kind of separate there for you? Are these guys in play at 18? Who would be your choice up front if you turn in the card for the Dolphins 18 on the offensive line? If they're picking an offensive lineman at 18, give me Tevin Jenkins all day long. You think about the Dolphins, their identity, and smash mouth football, and whether he's playing next to Robert Hunt, who would potentially kick inside and play right guard, and you know if you want to play musical chairs with Solomon Kinley, uh, obviously Eric Flowers is still in the picture at guard. Gives you the best opportunity to find your best group of five. And Tevin Jenkins, I think, stylistically, is a little bit better match than Vera Tucker, who's also positioned versatile. He obviously played with Austin Jackson in the past. But Jenkins is just built different. And what he does at the point of attack, him next to Robert Hunt on the right side of an offensive line, you, you think that just Tevin Jenkins gets you up fist pumping? Watching those two guys together potentially work would definitely get any Dolphins fan up out of their seat because they would just escort you out the club. They'd throw you out the club left and right. So Jenkins would be my pick. Darisaw is smooth. He's controlled. I like his cadence. Uh, He's really developed well. One of our scouts at TDN, Jordan Reed, actually recruited him coming out of high school at one point. So he is super familiar with his background and his story and his development. And uh, he's going to be a a darn good tackle for somebody. But Tevin Jenkins and just the demeanor, the fact that he's a natural right tackle, you have the opportunity to potentially move Robert Hunt around and find that best combination of five where those other two guys played on the left side of the line predominantly. Uh, I think those things all complement each other well. It was uh, Josh Sitton, who, who former Packer and, and one-year Dolphin, who talked okay. about changing your uh, stance and, and playing on the other side of the line, and he likened it to wiping your rear end with your other hand. So, you know, people say, oh, we'll just take him and move him over to the other side He'll play on the other side. I think that gets greatly glossed over by a lot of folks. So Jenkins being a natural right tackle is just like the icing on the cake. I asked Michael due to that exact same question and used that Josh Sitton quote his rookie year at camp, and he thought it was pretty funny. So that's a great <laughs> callback there to the old Josh Sitton, old one-game Josh Sitton on the left guard position for your Miami Dolphins. I'm also glad you mentioned Jordan Reed and the deep dives that he does because I love mm-hmm. I love reading his character profiles. Again, if you guys aren't following the Draft Network and all the work they do and going through about 4 billion mock drafts on the TDN mock draft machine, you're making a big mistake. Let's go ahead and continue this and close out with, with a couple more positions here, Kyle, at pick 18. The defensive mm-hmm. line in general, I think we all can agree, interior is probably off the board at that point. But Jalen Phillips, you know, he's got the medical concerns, whether the fact that he's a top 10 player in this class just on an ability alone. Quiddy Pay, who a lot of folks have told me that they thought he was used incorrectly at Michigan. Is there anybody else in that group on the defensive line? And could one of these guys possibly be a Miami Dolphin come Thursday night? Yeah, so Jalen Phillips, for my money, if you're just looking at the tape in 2020, has the best defensive tape of any prospect in the class. Uh, as far as the pass rusher, all the things we were talking about with his ability to win one-on-ones, uh, 
how rare of an athlete he is. One of his comparables uh, based off his pro day numbers is like Jadavion Clowney, who was, of course, number one overall pick. But Jalen Phillips was more advanced as a pass rusher than Clowney was coming out of South Carolina. And uh, I think that's where it gets to be a, a, a really challenging evaluation is he did medically retire due to con- concussions at UCLA. And some of that was school policy. Uh, he did have a, a wrist procedure uh, that you know is something that teams will have to vet. It's a question of do you want the potential boom and the payoff of Jalen Phillips and his natural ability as a pass rusher? He was one of the top recruits coming out of high school, and you could see it. I went down to the the uh, the Liberty Bowl and watched Memphis play UCLA that that year. That he was a true freshman, and he was the best player on the field as a true freshman. Now, then he had a high ankle sprain that cut and significant playing time off of the rest of his true freshman season, and this was the first year he finally put it all together. So if you're going strictly off the talent, Jalen Phillips checks all the boxes that you would like to see. It's the other stuff versus a high floor guy in Quiddy Pay who still has plenty of untapped pass rush potential to potentially grow into. Uh, and that usage thing at Michigan is not just exclusive to Quiddy Pay. It was there with Rayshon Gary a couple of years ago, and he ended up going in the, the top 12 to the Green Bay Packers. And uh, you look at Chase Winovich, and he moved around a little bit as well. So uh, they had a lot of bodies in that edge group, and Quiddy Pay might be the most rare athlete of the bunch. I think he checks the Dolphins' boxes as far as being able to dictate the line of scrimmage and be really good against the run and control his offensive lineman and then read plays and find the football. It's just he's not quite as advanced as a pass rusher, in my opinion, versus what Jalen Phillips is. So if you, are you looking for the, the year one payoff? Or do you want the year three payoff? And, and I think that's an interesting uh, dilemma. Chris Greer spoke with the South Florida media at the end of last week and talked a little bit about, hey, like, ideally, yeah, they all come in and they make an impact. But, you know, there are no starters this time of year. And, and we're going to let competition suss it out and find out who fits where on the depth chart. Uh, I, I get the impression because there is so much long-term stability in the Dolphins management and brain trust is doing such a great job of, creating this product that they wouldn't be afraid to take a guy who maybe needs a little bit more time to develop his pass rush palette like Quiddy Paywood. I mean, we saw it last year, right? Pick number 30 in the draft and they wind up taking a guy who plays early because of injuries, but then becomes a special team exclusive pretty much towards right. the end of the season and Noah Igbenogany. And, you know, here he is 20 years old, now 21 years old, kind of start coming into his own, hopefully here in year number two. Let's go ahead and round this out with a linebacker group. You know, I don't think Micah Parsons makes it there, but if he does, he's certainly an intriguing option. Zayvon Collins also in that group. Does Are both those guys worth the 18th pick? How do they kind of differ? And is there anybody else you would add at the linebacker spot at pick 18? I don't want to say I would guarantee because the guarantee with the NFL draft is always a dangerous game, but at least one of these guys will be gone is my gut feeling. Um, they're both great fits for Miami uh, as far as, being versatile, you think about the, the departure of Kyle Van Noy, and uh, he was a player who took a lot of his snaps on the line of scrimmage this past year. I think it was close to 70% of his alignments were classified as on the line of scrimmage. Micah Parsons has experience as a pass rusher going back to his years at, at the high school level, and, and Zayvon Collins uh, was featured as a pressure player in stretches. He didn't line up quite, there quite with the same frequencies, more of a stack off-ball linebacker. And he was used more in coverage in third downs, but both of those guys can rush the passer. And I think that makes them really attractive options in that they're both more dynamic versions 
of Kyle Van Noyen and Zayvon Collins's case, he's bigger than Kyle Van Noyen. But I envision both of those guys in that kind of role. They can play forward on third downs. They can be attack players as blitzing players or coming off the edge. They can drop and play zones. I think Collins's ability in zone coverage is really attractive for Miami. Whereas Parsons, I think you probably have to feature him in attack mode coming forward a little bit more, at least early on in his career. But he'd only played two years of off-ball linebacker, and he opted out in 2020. So uh, there's a ceiling there, much like there's a ceiling with Quiddy Pay as a pass rusher. I think there's a ceiling is there for Micah Parsons as a coverage linebacker. Zayvon Collins is bigger. He gives you more polish. He's just not as athletically dynamic. But those would probably be the two guys. I know some people want to talk about Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa, but he took the majority of his snaps, snaps like out in the slot, like playing on the hashes. And I just think for Miami, yeah, you saw Owusu Kormo at Notre Dame line up in the box, but I think they'd like to probably have some more size when you just look at how they generally address the roster. And they like having big bodies, the same big people beat up little people in the game of football, right? So if you can get a guy who's 220 or you can get a guy who's similarly athletic at 240, or a guy who's a little less athletic, but 265, I would tend to think Miami in the box would trend towards those bigger bodies. I'm really proud of you for not bringing in the guy that we're going to talk about at pick 36 at that position group that I know you're in love with out of my Ohio State University. We're going to get to that on tomorrow's podcast. Plenty more to come here with Kyle Krabs of the Draft Network. Kyle, thanks for this night one preview and going over this Dolphins offseason. We're going to come right back tomorrow and talk about day two, day three, and we're going to have Kyle give you a seven-round Dolphins mock draft. All of that and more on tomorrow's podcast. Come back with us in the meantime. Check out the Draft Network. Check out at Grinding the Tape. That's Kyle's Twitter time or Twitter handle, I should say. Subscribe, rate, review the podcast. Follow me at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible podcast. And of course, MiamiDolphins.com. Until tomorrow, fins up.